Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with Steve Platt about his new book, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War. This came out in 2012 with Vintage Books. I will keep this short because the interview is fairly extensive and just say this is a book that is an absolute pleasure to read, whether you are a specialist in Chinese history or whether you just really love beautifully, thoughtfully written narrative. It's a story that takes the account of the Taiping Civil War and reframes it literally and figuratively in ways that both engage it within a larger global narrative critically and also bring out some of the really fascinating, very fraught human stories that are inherent in the ways that the various events that um, he presents us unfold. So it's a really um, pleasurable book to read. It's also a very powerful book, and it really was a pleasure to talk with Steve about it. So I hope you have a chance to read the book if you haven't already had the chance, um, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. And for listeners who are regulars of New Books in East Asian Studies, I might recommend um, listening to this interview and also our previous interview with Toby Meyer Fong about her book about the Taiping Civil War and consider them to be books that are t- uh, to some extent, in dialogue with each other. I think the two interviews really form a beautiful kind of pair. Okay, enjoy. We're here today to talk with Stephen Platt about his new book, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, China, the West, and the Epic Story of the Taiping Civil War. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Steve, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me here, Carla. It's really a pleasure, and I'll say just right out front to get this right out there for everyone, this is one of the most beautifully written history books that I've ever read, and I read a lot of history books, and so it's it's really a pleasure. Um, it was a pleasure to read the book. It's really a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you about it, and I'm especially excited um, about talking with you, so yay. Oh, thank you. So, Steve, could you start off, as is uh, traditional for our channel, by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, what brought you to the field of the history of modern China? <laughs> um, <laughs> this is a small I, question. No, I've, I've never, I've never had a, a perfect answer to that. Um, accident, to a large extent. Um, I actually, I had no knowledge of or even interest in China all the way through high school, all the way through college. Um, I was in, I graduated as an English major from college. Um, but um, my senior year, I heard about a program where you could go and teach in Hunan province for two years and they would pay your airfare and they would pay for language study. And it just sounded like sort of an exciting adventure. And, and I went off and did that. It was the Yale China program. Um, so for the first two years after college, I lived in, in Changsha, the capital of Hunan, um, teaching at a middle school, teaching English to 13, 14 year old kids and learning Chinese. Um, and that's really what hooked me. Um, yeah, if it had been you know, if it had been a teaching program in India, I'd probably be doing something having to do with India today. Um, but anyway, it was it was a 
fascinating time to be in China. This was in the mid nineties when sort of on the outside, everyone was getting rich. And then on the inside of the school, they were still indoctrinating all the students with socialism. And, and you know, these are very, very sort of heavy government oriented views of the past. Um, and so I came back from that. Um, I had no way of really continuing with Chinese studies in the U.S. simply because I had never taken a course in the United States where I could get a recommendation from a professor. Um, so I started English grad school, which was my trajectory in college. Um, I went to Michigan. I was, stu- I was studying an English PhD program and just started studying as much Chinese as I could while I was there. Um, so I took Chinese literature with Itzame Feuerwerker. I took um, I started studying classical Chinese with Scott Cook, um, just these wonderful teachers. And, and it's, there's so much there to learn. And, and they were the ones who ultimately helped to get me into graduate school to do Chinese studies, which is what I really wanted. Um, I sort of dithered between literature and history and in the end wound up with history. Um, and I look back now, and this is really probably the very last thing my high school self could have imagined that I would be doing now, but I'm very happy doing it. (laughs) (laughs) So the book that we're talking about looks at the history of the Taiping Civil War, and it places the Taiping Civil War in a global context. And we'll talk about um, elements of that and the way that shapes and reshapes the narrative over the course of our conversation, I'm sure. Now, the Taiping Civil War was, as you um, tell us very helpfully in the beginning of the book, the bloodiest civil war of all time. The death toll was at least 30 times as high as that of the U.S. Civil War. And still, it remains relatively little known in the U.S. Now, your account of the Taiping Civil War differs quite substantively um, from many other accounts of the Civil War, and we'll talk about the details of that as we proceed through. But to get us started, can you say a little bit about how both how you came to work on this topic and how you decided to create a book-length object about this topic that focuses on the Civil War? That's a great question. Um, it came together in pieces, I guess I would have to say. Um, I had my dissertation in grad school, which was the basis of my first book, was on um, was on the Hunanese uh, in modern China. I think that that interest was left over from from having gotten my start in China from living in Hunan. Um, and one of the leftover bits from that that I wanted to know more about was the the whole phenomenon of the Hunan army fighting against the Taiping. Um, that was something that I had to sort of glance over very quickly in the course of, of my first book. And I had always wondered, just why, how, why did the Hunan army work? What was, how did it fight? How was it really organized? How did it come to be this incredible force in the mid-19th century? I mean, you know, Sun Guofan, by the end, was you know, absolutely the most powerful man in all of China. Um, and I think this book was really born out of that. Um, and it was a matter of taking that and a few other threads that I had thought about working on maybe for an article or something like that. And then finding as I started working on them that actually they locked together um, in that there was a larger picture at work there. And I would have to say the biggest leap of faith, and this is, um, this is, you know, this is true for just about anyone who, who decides to write a book on something, um, 
it was the sort of stepping off into the unknown and, and, and sort of saying, well, how big can this go? How, how, how far can I reach out to pull in threads to this? How big of a, of a story can I tell? Um, and there's, I think going through, this was my second book and this was written you know, not too long after graduate school. And I think you come through graduate school looking for a dissertation topic, which means a, a, a densely original um, you know, work that has never been seen before that is you know, where you, you have the fullest command of it of anyone out there, um, you know, really, really making your mark. But the liberation of moving on to the second book, I think, is that you don't have to be the expert on every single thing that you write about in the book that you can sort of, you choose your battles within the topic. What are the areas that you want to go into deeply with your research? And you can allow that there, that in order to flesh out the story, there will also be parts in there that are, that are based you know, on, on other people's work and you can pull And that's really sort of how you, how you can pull together the larger picture. Um, so it was, it was just, it was it was wonderful and liberating, and I got to go diving into sources on on, on you know, parliamentary debates about what to be done in China, and and you know, visit various Massachusetts figures who show up in there. I live in Massachusetts now, um, and in the end, it turned into something completely different from what I ever could have imagined when I first started. I guess I would have to say. So let's talk a little bit about um, the book itself again, and the kind of writing style that you brought to the book. It's as I've mentioned already, it's a gorgeously written book. And it's a book that's clearly written to be read by a wide audience, not just an audience of readers that are um, specifically working on modern Chinese history in an academic context. So can you talk a little bit about that decision? Um, How did you decide to write a book that was pitched in that way to such a wide audience? And how were there any notable elements of that process that differed substantially from your experience writing an academic book um, that stand out for you as particularly notable? Um, and worthy of discussion. Well, as far as the decision to write for a wider audience, I think because maybe because I came into the field so late um, after college, uh, and I, when I was living in China, I did a lot of reading of English language work, works about China, and the ones that I loved the most were, were you know, ones by you know, John Fairbank and Jonathan Spence, and people who were writing you know, works that were fully accessible to, to sort of a general reader like myself, coming from my English major background, and. I've always wanted to do something like that. Um, it's, you know, you, you never know if you're actually going to reach any kind of an audience, but I don't think anyone goes into a book hoping not to reach a, a wider audience. Um, so in a certain sense, because I knew what it felt like to approach a book on China and be completely intimidated and mystified by it, um, I had more of a sense of, of how to do things in a way so that, you know, my college self would be able to understand what it was I was writing. I mean, I, I should mention here that my um uh, and when I was an undergrad, um, Jonathan Spence was, he taught his modern China survey every year. And it was one of the most popular classes at Yale. And there were you know, 400 students signing up for it. All of my sweetmates took it. Everybody took it. They called it Spence and everyone was lugging around the big red book. I never, t- I not only never took it. Um, I was, I, I, I picked up the book because one of my roommates had it and just sort of looked through it and all the names looked the same and I couldn't sort it out. And I just couldn't understand how anyone could even go to that class. Um, you know, so I, and, and then the funny part was that then I came back for graduate school and was a TA for that class, <laughs> grading everyone's papers. Um, but I know what it feels like to to uh, be confused and alienated by a story about China. <laughs> um, and 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 I think that having been on the other side of that, it, it was easier easier to try to sort of you know 
have the same ideas that you would write in any format, but just try to express them in a way that somebody could understand who doesn't necessarily have the background coming in. Um, and I mean, frankly, I was an English major. I've always wanted to be a writer. Most English majors do, but then, then they wind up criticizing literature rather than actually writing it. Um, but as, as far as the question about the difference between writing this and writing an academic book, I don't think my writing was all that different um, in writing this book or writing or, or writing my my previous academic book. Um, I, I, I put a lot of care into the writing of both. Um, one of the biggest differences, though, I think, was just in the, um, the 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 process of the end game. You're always alone when you're writing a manuscript. You're always alone when you're doing your research, for the most part. Um, it's when you finally get it all together how much um, how much feedback and attention you get. And there, I have to say, it was just wonderful working um, working with a trade press where I had my editor there who did very substantial editing, and he, there were other editors there who also took passes through. They had two separate proofreaders. Um, a lot of uh, they they put a lot of editing attention, and I got a lot of help from them in ways that. I would not have been able to get generally from an academic press just because of budget issues. Um, they, um, and the other, the other big difference, and, and this is something that, that's sort of widely debatable in the field, and it depends how one feels about, about blind peer review. Um, but since I was working with a trade press, there was no peer review. So it was up to me to find people who knew something about my topic. And I'd sent off my manuscript to several people who I really respected very highly. And they, you know, they very generously went through and gave me feedback. But the fact that it was not anonymous, um, the fact that these scholars were, were writing, you know, they were writing to me rather than sending something anonymously to an editor to forward it to me, um, they were wonderfully helpful in, in ways that not all academic press readers are. I, I, I should with my first book, I had one incredibly detailed um, uh, reviewer who you know, found errors and footnotes and had you know suggestions for reframing chapters. It was just so deeply helpful. And another one who, frankly, you know, felt like he, you know he or she just sort of dashed it off um, and and hadn't really put very much effort into it. Whereas the when when you are choosing your own reviewers, I mean it's it's on you to make sure that they're good and they're going to help you um, and that, the, you know, that you're sending it to the right people. But if they do agree, then it is a sort of a face-to-face -face interaction. Um, and, and, and in that sense, I feel like I got much more sort of careful help and editing from these other people. And also I could pick up the phone and call them and be like, what do you mean I, I should do that? What, what do you mean? And I could call Toby Meyer Fong and say, what do you mean this doesn't work here? I thought that was great. And she said, no, 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 that has to go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it's, um, it, it's, so in a sense, I felt like it was a more collegial experience um, working, working with the trade press. Awesome. That's really interesting to hear. So the book, the book is framed with two quotes, um, and I'll just sort of put the first one out there and we can come back to it um, if you'd like, and, and we'll talk about the last one when we get to the end of our conversation. The first framing quote, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, Matthew 5, 9. So this brings us into a conversation about an event that we often think of as Chinese. It's in China. One of the things that you're doing with this account of the Taiping Civil War is you're arguing that the story of this war is, as you put it, necessarily an international one. So the book really reframes the nature of not just the war as fundamentally an international one for some people, but it also reframes how we understand the nature of that foreign intervention in the Civil War. 
So you talk about um, the nature of that intervention being at the same time early in this book crucial and also kind of half-hearted and morally fraught and accidental. Um, so maybe this is a good place to start our foray into the book itself. Um, at, at what or can you talk a little bit for yourself about the the importance for you of how you thought about um, the role of, or how you were depicting the importance of international relations as it shaped the Civil War and, and what you think the important elements of how you're arguing for the characterization of that um, or how you're arguing for the characterization of that international involvement in the war as it's different from uh, how some other authors have chosen to frame the war. Sure. Um, there are so many aspects to it, uh, but l- let me just pick a few that, that sort of helped, uh, they helped me think through this book. Um, the, one of the questions that drove the research for this, I mean, what, what, after, after um, sort of doing some research on Hong Rangan and, and just about his life and about the, the things that he was sort of promising, um, one of the questions that helped shape this book was why did the foreign powers intervene um, against the Taiping? Uh, for one thing, they managed to remain neutral in this war for a decade while it was being fought on this horrific scale in central China. But, um, the, but the British and American governments certainly were very princi- in a very principled way. They made new- maintained neutrality. Um, they made it illegal for their own nationals to get involved in this war. Um, why did they stay hands off for for a full decade and then throw themselves into it? Um, especially the, the British, there, especially the U.S. The Americans were more giving moral encouragement because they didn't have any military power to project at that point. Um, so why did they intervene? And, uh, and also just a, a question of why did they intervene against the Taiping? Um, why here was the, here they were defending the power that they'd fought the Opium War against. The, the Taiping prime minister was was trying to promise all kinds of you know, free trade and equal diplomacy um, and, and holding out all these olive branches. Why was it that that the foreigners <clears throat> just sort of slapped him down ultimately um, and paid no attention to that? Because it was. At the time, and this this is one of the ways in which you sort of you wind up locking onto things as a historian. I've, given my previous understanding of the Taiping Rebellion, those seemed like sort of silly questions because they were they, they, they didn't sort of fit into the standard narrative. Oh, of course, the British supported the Qing because they had a treaty with them, and they, and they were worried that the Taiping would stamp out opium. No, but actually, if you look into it, the Taiping were just as eager to buy opium as 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 anyone in the Qing controlled territories was. Um, it was more looking at the time and realizing how many British and other foreign observers um, were quite confused about what the foreigners should be playing in terms of a role in this war, or if they should be playing any role at all. Um, and as I dug further, I found some people in, in very important positions of influence who were saying very strongly that the only moral course for the foreign powers through this is to remain neutral. And then, then it became the question of how did neutrality break down and why in the end did the British launch themselves in? Because the other side of all of this is um, sort of the legend of Frederick Townsend Ward and um, especially Charles Gordon, um, who I guess he's fallen out of the imperial pantheon now, but he used to be up there with Lawrence of Arabia. It was Charles Chinese Gordon who had gone in to, to organize the Chinese forces. He was... He, as, as the whole Taiping Rebellion was understood in the Western world, he was the victor in, in this war. That, you know, Gordon had gone in and beat the Taiping. Um, and I was wondering, how, did, how was that myth created? Did the 
did the help of the foreigners actually matter at all in this war with armies of a hundred thousand and more? Why should a little pinprick of an intervention with you know a few foreigners and and you know leading a few thousand Chinese troops? Why should that really matter? And the thing that became so fascinating to me was that, on the one hand, it worked very badly, but at the same time, it did work for reasons that nobody at the time really understood. Um, the, the, the foreigners operating out of Shanghai had no real concept of what was going on in the interior of China with the fighting with the Hunan army. Um, but the two forces managed to balance each other off at, at sort of crucial times that that pinprick of an intervention of the foreigners, um, it, to me, it seemed very – that that was really what made Zhang Guofan's victory possible. Now, you brought up, um, this is actually a really nice segue into the body chapters of the book itself, because you've, you've um, briefly alluded to this character who's actually very much at the center of the story, and this is Hong, Hong Rengan. Now, we meet Hong in chapter one, which opens in Hong Kong in 1852. You introduce us to this young Swedish missionary named Theodore Hamburg. And Hamburg has in his desk a written account by Hong Rengan, of his life, um, of you know, his travails. Hamburg translates this account. Um, he has it published. And this is really the beginning of a book-long relationship that we have with this character of Hong Rengan. So can you introduce him for us? Um, who is Hong Rengan and why, or, or how is he, or really, why did you choose to focus on him as really the the star cousin of the story, rather than his cousin Hong Xiuquan, who usually is you know that sort of the big Taiping hero, right? So who is he, and why is he so important for the way you have chosen to tell the story? Um, Hong Rengan really he was the linchpin that held the whole thing together. Um, he was the only Taiping leader who had who knew Westerners, um, who could speak a foreign language, um, who had lived amongst them. Um, so just to introduce him, he was the younger cousin of, of Hong Xiuquan, Hong Xiuquan being the, the, the visionary, you know, you know, let's just be honest, lunatic, um, who, who, who led the, the one who, who decided that he was the son of God and, and led, led this typing rebellion from the very beginning. His cousin got separated from the movement very early on um, and actually spent the first several years of the war in Hong Kong, where he had found sanctuary amongst the foreign missionaries there. Um, and he is, he studied especially with, with James Legg, who's sort of the doyen of the missionary community there. Um, and, while he was there, he learned about the outside world. He learned, he, he saw you know, a foreign society in living action. Um, and he also gained a lot of sympathy amongst the foreign missionaries who were resident in Hong Kong. He was deeply admired. People had very, very nice things to say about him. Um, and even though Leg didn't think that he should have anything to do with the Taiping because they were blasphemers, which is what most of the missionaries would eventually decide, um, the other of the missionaries in Hong Kong believed that if they could just somehow get Hong Rangan up to Nanjing um, because he knew the proper doctrines now from studying with them um, that he could be the one to teach the the heavenly king of the Taipings the true religion of Christianity um, that he could sort of, he could be the missionary to the movement from within um, so they sneak him out of Hong Kong and he spends the better part of a year trying to traverse this horribly war-torn country um, appears finally makes his appearance in Nanjing just 
after the movement has the government of the movement has fallen apart completely of infighting and coups within the within the inner ranks, um, and in sort of the aftermath of that, the uh, Hong Xiaochuan, his cousin, is so delighted that he's come that he suddenly promotes him to number two in the entire movement. And so here you have this sort of humble. You know, assistant missionary from Hong Kong who's suddenly been launched up to a level where he's the prime minister and head of all of the armies of the Taiping Rebellion. Um, and then what he does, which, I, which again, was, is so fascinating and fascinating especially in how it's responded to by Westerners is that he comes up with this lengthy proposal for reform. It's really the first reform proposal of its kind in China. It never manages to get implemented in any way because they're, they're you know, muddled up in the war for the entire time. But he proposes to his cousin that there should be steamships and there should be railroads and there should be newspapers and there should be Western-style legal courts um, and there should be open diplomacy with Westerners and they should stop calling them barbarian and all, a whole laundry list of things that the foreigners have been trying to get from the Manchus for you know, for a generation at least, um, and here he was offering them voluntarily, and he's so he's the one who represents the potential connection between uh, between the outsiders and this in the sort of homegrown rebellion in the center of China. Um, he's the one that the foreigners who do make it to Nanjing go and have audiences with. He's the one who still who continues to communicate with those outside, and he's sort of the public face of the movement. And as you go through the book, you can see him just sort of basically declining um, and, and this initial hopefulness of, of, of a union with the foreigners and they will all the Christian brothers together will smash the Manchus just sort of fades um, and is lost and, 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 and he, he ends with, with a disaster by the end. And you've mentioned um, the Manchus and this is actually um, a good chance for me to just mention briefly for listeners, this is an important way that the account of the Taiping um, Civil War here does also differ from previous accounts of the Taiping Civil War is that you're focusing less on the, the element of this that is about religious ideology and more on the emphasis of the Taiping rebels on the ethnic grounds of their positions. This is actually an important argumentative part of the story as well. Okay, so we meet um, Hong Rengan. We follow him as he makes his way to Nanjing. He becomes named uh, Shield King for the Taiping forces, and he proposes these reforms, as you've mentioned. Dot, dot, dot. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the story, enter James Bruce, Earl of Elgin, on board the HMS Furious. Um, he also is introduced early in the book, and he also becomes a character that we spend lots and lots of time with over the course of the book. So who is he and what is he doing in this early part of the book um, that is sort of central to what's happening in the story? Elgin, I mean, shorthand for Elgin is he's the most hated foreigner in all of Chinese history. <laughs> I think. I mean, I can't, I haven't been able to come up with it with a better candidate. There, there maybe there's somebody way back when. Um, uh, but Elgin is the one who ultimately destroys the Summer Palace. Um, when he first when he first appears, he's the one who's been sent in charge. Uh, this is the Second Opium War or, or the Arrow War, and he's the one who's been sent to basically force a new treaty, a revision of the Treaty of Nanjing. Um, leads his fleet. They fight their way up to Tianjin in eighteen fifty eight. Smash their way through the defenses at the Dagu forts. Um, force a new a new treaty to open new treaty ports, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. One of the reasons why he's so important in here and uh, really has to do with um, historiographic firewalls that we set up, um, which is that the Taiping Rebellion and the Second Opium War 
are pretty much always treated as entirely separate conflicts. Um, that they're, you know, on the one hand, the Qing dynasty is fighting against the rebellion of whatever you want to call them, religious sectarians or ethnic nationalists or whatever, whatever you want to view them as. Um, and then on the other hand, there's this problem of the Qing dynasty versus the foreign, the foreign imperialists. Um, the crucial and important thing here, and one, and one of the things that's so gratifying about simply walking through a subject in chronological order is, obviously, they were happening at exactly the same time. Um, and, the, and the fact that the foreigners were going and invading Beijing at the same time that the Taiping were fighting out of Nanjing and heading, toward, heading into the east is extremely important for furthering the Taiping cause. Um, going a little fast forward with, 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 the, with Lord Elgin. So he forces the treaty revision. The treaty has to go back to England to be signed for ratification. A year later in 1859, his, his younger brother, who is the unfortunate guy in this book, um, Frederick Bruce, um, shows up hoping to be the first British ambassador to be allowed in Beijing. Again, he brings his ratified treaty. Um, and at this point, the Xianfeng emperor has decided that there's no way that he's going to ratify this treaty. So the Qing forces spring a surprise attack on the British fleet. Uh, the British in 1859 suffer one of their most humiliating military defeats that they ever, that they ever suffer in Asia. Um, a, a complete reversal of what they're accustomed to from the Opium War. So the, the fleet is smashed. Several of the boats are sunk. There are several hundred casualties on the British side. Um, and then it's one year after that that Elgin re- returns um, at the head of this massive mission of revenge. Um, they fight their way all the way into Beijing and then they burn the Summer Palace to the ground. And that is coinciding exactly with the timing of Hongrengan reaching Nanjing, taking control of the military there, um, coming with a new strategy of heading east. Um, and the Taiping explode out of Nanjing. They've been moribund for a few years at this point. Um, they explode out of Nanjing and head and t- to take over uh, Jiangsu and Zhejiang provinces. Um, at the same time that the British are, are demolishing the Summer Palace and driving the and driving the Shenfeng Emperor in, into exile, where he's going to die and never come back, and the incredible simultaneity of this, um, and the fact that by the autumn of 1860 you have the Taiping ascendant in eastern China at the same time that the Summer Palace is a smoking ruin, um, just sums up how close. I mean, it really represents to me how close the Qing Dynasty came to collapse at that point. But when we throw up the firewall and we view those conflicts as being entirely separate, you don't understand what the, their simultaneity really meant for the dynasty. Um, and frankly, I would also see you also get sort of ironic interpretations. Like when you go to Beijing and you go to the Yuan Ming Yuan and you see all the signs outside of, you know, about the humiliation and how the Chinese people are, you know, finally stood up to the foreigners, you know, the, you know, the foreigners you know, destroyed the palace, blah, blah, blah. Keep in mind that that was in the context of the Taiping Rebellion when, for the same people who put up those signs, the Taiping were the heroes. This is back when they thought of the Taiping as being you know, peasant nationalists. Um, the Qing were the evil feudalist forces that they were trying to destroy. So wasn't it helpful that, that Elgin came and, and you know, burned down the Summer Palace, which was a symbol of the Qing dynasty? Um, in other words, these things, these things uh, tend to get muddled together. Right, right. Okay, so yeah, so it, so I hope listeners are also getting a sense of like the pacing of the story from how we're talking about it because it's really a pleasure to read. This is a page turner, and the and the story really unfolds in this rapid pace as we've been, but you know, careful, but really kind of exciting. What happens next? Kind of a pacing of a history book. Okay, so we've met um, Hongren Gan. He's now in Nanjing. Um, he's arguing for. 
um, this, these kinds of reforms is trying to incorporate Britain and the U.S. into these plans. We've got Elgin, who's burned down the Summer Palace. Queen Victoria's gotten a little dog out of it called Lud, <laughs> which is horrible and wonderful at the same time. <laughs> uh, the Shanfeng Emperor moves out of the Summer Palace to the Forbidden City and kind of absconds from there and sneaks out. All this kinds of stuff is happening. Okay, enter someone we haven't talked about, but someone who happens to be also one of the linchpins of this whole story, Zheng Guofan. Okay, so when we um, move from part one, Twilight, into part two, Order Rising, we're introduced to General Zheng Guofan. He had been a Hanlin scholar. At this point, he's got no practical military experience. He doesn't want a military appointment. And yet, at the same time, he winds up setting up what you call in here a Confucian scholar's vision of an army. And this has massive repercussions for the way that this um, this period of history plays out. So can you um, introduce him for us? Um, who is Zheng Guofan? What do we need to understand about him at this point in the story and about his army, specifically the Hunan army, in order to understand the argument you're using um, him to make in this part of the book? Sure. Um, Zheng Guofan, he really is the central character in all of this. Um, it's uh, I, I, When I was writing this, I sort of struggled with the fact that I wasn't able to the, the the logic of the story itself didn't let me bring him in until chapter six. And I think, well, you know, are the readers going to make it this far and even meet him? That, I sort of wish that there was a way to start with him. But, um, but so he, he doesn't come in until a whole third of the book has passed. But he's he's the dark horse at that point. Um, so he is, as you said, he, he he's a absolutely brilliant scholar. I mean, he, he you know, came from a, a family with you know nothing in its background. It's father was the first one to take the exams and failed, uh, I want to say 15 or 16 times. I have to go look it up um, before finally passing the lowest level. And Zheng Guofan brilliantly shoots his way up through the ranks, becomes a Hanlin scholar, um, has this sort of charmed career. Um, and it just so happens that his mother dies um, as the Taiping are carving their way north in Hunan. And so he's he's home in Hunan while the Taiping are fighting their way through. Um, and and simply because of the collapse of the imperial forces, since the Green Standard armies were so incapable of, of stemming the tide of, of the rebellion, um, he was authorized to raise an army of his own, um, really to, to or, first to organize the militias that had sprung up in Hunan province. And you know, there's a long tradition of these, dating, you know, certainly the, the, the White Lotus being the, the probably the most recent major example of them. But there were these militias that had sprung up all over the province. He was entrusted to pull them together into an army. And the thing that well, there, there there are so many things that make him unique. I mean, I mean, he's he's known best as a father actually these days for his moral advice to his sons. Um, but the way that he viewed his officers, the way that he viewed his men, um, the essential structure of of the Hunan army was that he chose the generals himself. Um, these were scholarly friends of his. Several of them were his brothers. They were people who had a personal relationship with him. Um, they in turn chose their subordinate officers. And going on down the line, at every level within this, within this military hierarchy, um, there was nobody in the end who did not take or who was not in a position of taking orders from somebody that they already knew and respected. Um, so, and at the very bottom level, the 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 sort of the, the, the foot soldiers were generally from the same village or from the same area, um, and they were recruited by a scholar from that area, and so they knew each other and they knew where each other lived. They couldn't just desert um, they, as they could in, in in the general imperial military with the green standard. Um, 
and they and as it first emerged, this army was meant to protect their homes, um, that they were to, to drive the rebels out of Hunan province, to drive it out of, out of the various towns and cities there. And when they grow beyond that point, and Tsung Fan is then called upon to take his army down the Yangtze River to try to, to, try to drive the Taiping down to Nanjing, that to me, is is the place where it becomes so utterly fascinating um, that you have this general who possesses an army that's loyal to him, um, not directly to the emperor. He himself is loyal to the emperor, um, but all of the layers of his army below him are from his own home province for the most part, um, and they, their loyalty is directed to him as a person, um, and he feels a deep responsibility to them, and they're... And, what you see as he begins his fighting is this question of, well, if we move beyond Hunan, is Hunan going to be left undefended? Um, are the rebels going to come back and attack? How do we keep up the morals, uh, the, the morals of our of our men? The other side of him that's also so fascinating. I mean, he developed into an absolutely ruthless tactician. I mean, he's a, he was a military genius, um, but he also was very well aware of how corrupt the general and generally incompetent the bureaucracy up in Beijing could be. He had, he had, he had been there. He had lived there. He had been part of it. Um, and so there, generally speaking, he doesn't follow orders um, that he knows. He feels that he knows best what must, must be done and where the armies should be sent. Um, and even when he is ordered, otherwise he finds various excuses to, to prosecute the, the war, the way he sees fit. Um, by the time you get to the later 1860s, he's got over 120,000 soldiers. This is the size of, of Ulysses Grant's army. Um, again, under his command, out of the direct control of Beijing, it was, it was quite a terrifying prospect for the dynasty. And the rumors just swirled about Zhang Lufan, and they, and they would continue to swirl uh, later on. But the, the speculations that at the end of this war that he was going to stay in Nanjing and become emperor. Um, the foreigners believed that that was likely to happen. They thought that, you know, that they thought that he was just unquestioned in his power. Um, you know, his 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 own friends were counseling him that this might be the way to go. And the thing that makes him so amazingly powerful as a character is that he lets go of his power at the end. Um, this man who later becomes blamed as the as the template for the warlords of the 20th century amasses this enormous amount of power, which he could u- potentially use any way he wanted to, and he used it for loyalty to the emperor, and then he gave them up. Um, he you know, he still held civil power, but he never even remotely imagined, as far as I could tell from his diaries and his letters, he never even remotely imagined that install giving himself power. Um, so, so he he to me is just one of the mo- is one of the most powerful moral figures in 19th century China. And he's super fascinating through the book because you take us through his this struggle that he's having um, internally. I mean, he's really the, the situation is really fraught for him. I mean, he's really um, sort of wrestling with his own inner demons and trying to come to terms with his role in all of this in a way that makes for really compelling characterization um, as well as a fascinating um, story. So where we are here, okay, so we see um, Zhong Guofan develop his army um, at the same time. Meanwhile, Hong Rangan is trying to um, gather support for the Taiping. He's trying to gather support among his foreign friends. He's got a room full of souvenirs that include a jar full of pickles. There's all <laughs> kinds of crazy stuff going on. Um, Hong is attempting to win over support of foreign interests for the Taiping government, um, being implicated in changing 
changing the examination system, for example, also to include the Bible. Um, meanwhile, there's all kinds of stuff happening back in England. Um, the Queen of England are supporting Elgin's actions in China, but there's widespread cries against Elgin's actions in China um, among a lot of the public. And you bring us into also the reactions by some public writing figures. Uh, Victor Hugo in France um, is criticizing the destruction of the Summer Palace, etc. Um, you also bring us into a battle um, as uh, the city of Anqing comes under siege. And from that battle, we also see Zhong Guofan and his army kind of changing and transforming. And we see Hong Rengan transforming um, out of that meeting as well. And out of that meeting, he, as you show, kind of becomes a changed man. And we see him going through a kind of decline um, relative to where he had been prior to this. Okay. Um, also, meanwhile, while all of this is happening, the emperor dies. The Shanfeng emperor dies. His five-year-old son takes over and guess who comes to power in that context we all know and love her <laughs> the empress dowager tsushi bam we could talk about her for <laughs> so all of this stuff is happening um but this is not the only thing that's happening pause change our focus over to what's happening um elsewhere across the ocean one of the really interesting things that you're doing um, in this book, among all of the rest of the things that's happening in this story, is you bring into dialogue and you juxtapose not just what's happening in the Taiping Civil War, but what's happening in, the, in terms of the breaking out of civil war in the U.S., Civil War in the U.S. broke out in 1861, and this actually impacts what's happening on the ground, um, at least for the British, um, in terms of the Taiping, uh, the Taiping Civil War and what's happening in China. So can you talk about that connection? Um, how does what's happening in the U.S. intersect with and engage with what's happening in China for the British? And what does juxtaposing these two civil wars help us understand about um, what's happening in the Qing? Sure. The uh, First, I should say there, there's no, there's obviously no necessary connection between the reasons for these civil wars, the civil war in the United States or the civil war in China. You know, they're, they're on completely different grounds. The the reason why their simultaneity is so important to Britain is is because these are two of its largest external markets, um, and they're also very much tied together. That cotton, that you know, Brit, the British would buy cotton from the from the U.S. South, they would process it in Lancashire, um, and then they would sell those tech, textiles in China. Um, similarly, a, a large amount of the green tea that they bought in China, they were shipping over to be sold in the United States. Um, and it's when they lose both of those markets to civil war um, and chaos that they're that that's the first time you have really strong calls for Britain to do something um, that that they they are facing a possible you know, you know, economic crisis caused by the collapse of foreign trade the prices of tea are, are bombing um, the British the British textiles become so expensive that they can no longer sell them in China they're being undersold by by the, by Chinese textiles and. It's really it's it, Britain is the one that's caught in the middle here, um, and the one of the reasons why they're why they're caught. And I, I should say here that, that Britain is not unitary, and all the way through all of this, um, there there's been a diversity of British opinions about what should be done about the war in China, um, what should be done, you know, whether they should remain neutral, etc. But according to to 
British law, and especially the Foreign Enlistment Act is, is the instrumental law here, um, if a foreign conflict is recognized as a civil war um, between two belligerent parties, they have to be recognized formally as belligerents, and if Britain is at war with neither of those two parties, then the British are, are forbidden from selling armed gunships to them or giving military aid to them. There's a whole laundry list of things that they cannot do, um, that they are supposed to maintain neutrality. And the tricky part is that they keep referring to what's going on in China as a civil war. And this is one of the reasons why, why I like, I prefer calling it the Taiping Civil War to the Taiping Rebellion. That's an entirely different question of why we would take the side of the Qing Dynasty and treat the Taiping simply as rebels. We don't call the U.S. Civil War the, the Southern Rebellion anymore. Um, but in terms of, sort of British legal thinking, and especially in terms of British moral thinking, the thing to do with a civil war is to maintain neutrality um, and let the two sides fight it out and then and, and, you know, and hope for the best in the end. And they are able to sort of finesse that in China. But when the other civil war breaks out in the, in the United States, that's sort of where push comes to shove. Um, so almost immediately after the outbreak of hostilities in the U.S., Britain formally grants belligerent status to the Confederacy. And immediately on the same day, the Times of London has an editorial calling for belligerent rights to be extended to the Taipings. Um, there is a movement within Parliament calling for the Taipings to be given equal treatment to the Confederates in the United States. And that's where you have the – and that's where, that's where you can see that actually the British intervention in China was not a product of widespread political will. Um, it was not the product of, of public will, generally. It was backdoor engineering, um, sort of exceptions to the Foreign Enlistment Act being made by the foreign minister when parliament was out of session. I mean, it was heavily, heavily criticized in parliament. Um, but what what happens is that ultimately they wind up, um, you know, Palmerston and then Lord Russell, his foreign secretary, um, decide to break with neutrality in China um, on the reasoning that it's simply a rebellion. Um, it's not a civil war. The Taiping aren't really a potential government. Um, they are simply destroyers who are who are ruining all of the tea districts and the silk districts. Um, they basically buy the the, the the imperial propaganda hook, line, and sinker. Um, so that the only honorable course left to Britain is to assist the good Qing dynasty um, in bringing order back to its markets. And they do this. And after they do this, one of these just wonderful quotations that leaps out at you from Hansard's parliamentary debates is um, after they have, you know, th you know, after they've thrown themselves in um, the, the, the British intervention ends scandalously, they have to pull out in the end, but you know, the, the war ends in China and Palmerston who is being, you know, being ripped apart by his critics in the house of commons um, sort of very proudly tells him, well, if you look, you can see that, you know, there's peace in China now. Um, and our intervention in China has restored the markets and has allowed us to, and has shielded us from the economic harm we otherwise would have suffered from the American Civil War. So clearly in, in Palmerston's eyes, it was the intervention in China that allowed Britain to endure the U.S. Civil War. Um, and, certain, and the timing is absolutely perfect. Britain maintains neutrality in China and holds on to that in a very principled way right up until the U.S. Civil War breaks out, and then they start tipping towards intervention. So in that sense, while there isn't a direct line of, of influence between the U.S. Civil War and the Chinese Civil War, if the U.S. Civil War had not broken out, it's a very large question of whether the British would have actually directly intervened in China. And if they had not, it's also a very large question of whether the typing might have won. There's no way to say. Um, but certainly the, the cascading of events starting with the U.S. Civil War helped to ensure that, sort of the doom of the typing.
Great, thank you. And and in terms of the way the story unfolds in part three, you really take us into the cascading of events that bring about ultimately um, blood and honor, right? The sort of um, British intervention in what's happening on the side of the Qing with all of the complications therein, right? And and, and we can talk about that um, if there's time as well. Now, among these um, cascading events are, um, well, we meet Li Hongzhang, Right at the beginning of this section, he um, he's, he's a 38-year-old scholar from Anhui when we meet him, and he's sent to Anhui to amass a provincial militia to kind of supplement the one that Zhang has got going um, in terms of his Hunan army. We also um, sort of, meanwhile, what's happening is um, a party, essentially, in Ningbo helps launch one of the events that winds up cascading into a bloody battle. There's base the Taiping are basically having a party in April in Ningbo celebrating the return <laughs> of one of their commanders. Someone fires a salute, right, to celebrate the return of this commander. And the projectiles like kind of go where they're not supposed to, I guess, and kill two or three Chinese residents of the foreign settlement, which basically this is basically used as an excuse after some backing and forthing by the British to attack the rebels in Ningbo, and it winds up being a super bloody battle. Um, and we sort of see how all of the characters that we've met so far are engaged and are responding to this and engaged with this. So including um, some of the British individuals that you've talked about, some of the soldiers um, and fighters that we actually haven't yet talked about, but that I'll just mark for listeners, including Ward, right? Um Ward, who is, I mean, I know him and I will now always know him, Frederick Townsend Ward, Ward as the guy who wears the tight black pants. <laughs> so he's, he's this like character who we meet early in the book who carries a swagger stick. He's got long black hair. He wears tight black pants. At some point in the story, um, he declares that he's actually a Chinese citizen. He gets engaged to one Chinese woman and then he like marries another one and he amasses an army and he escapes after being um uh, arrested by like jumping ship and getting anyway. So he is back in the story at this point. He's fighting and he's equipping his Chinese troops with weapons. Zhang Guofan is also um, sort of heavy with his army in the battle. Now, because he's one of the central figures that we see really changing and developing in terms as a man, as well as, you know, as a, a, a figure in this story, where is he in this last part of the story as all of this is happening? Sort of as um, the British are getting involved on the side of the Qing, what's happening with Zhang, and how do we see him changed from where he started? Um, Zhang Guofan is focused entirely on Nanjing by that point, um, and he's or sent his brother ahead with a small army to lay siege to Nanjing. It's you know the sort of pitch camp by the by the walls of the city. Um, Zhang Guofan is living in absolute agony. Frankly, um, his I, I should say that the probably the most enjoyable part of the research for this book and the thing that I didn't want to end was uh, just getting immersed in Zhang Guofan's diary and his letters to, to his brother who is you know, in that camp outside of Nanjing and just the, you can just follow day by day and get, he keeps getting these messages about how poorly things are going at Nanjing and how they're surrounded by you know tens of thousands or a hundred thousand Taiping who are laying siege to their little camp um, and then the flow of letters stops and you know, Zhang Guofan, you know, awake in the middle of the night brooding and pacing and, and weeping and trying to figure out what's happening before you know finding out that actually his brother is still alive um, but 
Zhang Guofan, frankly, is living in agony. He did not believe, at least he gives no indication of ever really believing that he would win the war. Um, I should also I should also emphasize with Zhang Guofan in, in his particular role here um, is that Again, as a previously untested military commander who never wanted to be a military commander, he has to fill the vacuum that's left from the collapse of the of the imperial armies in the face of the Taiping and in the face of the foreign of the foreigners. Um, and so he's sort of filling this gap with his with his own new army while he's still trying to figure out how it is that how it is that you fight. Um, and there's and, and as you follow through, there are many times when he thought he had lost. Uh, there, there's, there's one point there, I, mean, I, I worked it into the book, um, but there's one point where he's surrounded, in, I believe this is an Anhui province, um, where he, he's surrounded with a small force. Um, he thinks that the battle in the morning is going to bring his own death, and he writes a will to his sons back home. Um, and one of the things that he says in the course of that is, don't follow a military career. He said, I was never meant for this. Um, you know, whatever you do, don't follow the path that I followed. And he said, you also don't need to be an official. Um, just tend to your studies, be a good scholar. And the, the, one of the things that's uh, really heartbreaking about him um, is that really what he wanted was to remain a scholar. Um, he was extremely responsible, but he was conscientious to the point of, of you know, if you, uh, send somebody in to diagnose him, he seemed extremely depressed and fearful, um, that knowing that basically the whole empire was hanging on his shoulders. And he, at least in his, in, in his own sort of Confucian writing to himself with all of his self-criticism, he certainly did not ever seem to allow himself to think that he would win this or that he was actually as talented as people thought he was. So by the end of, or by the last chapters at least, he's distraught, um, even though his army survives an attack at Nanjing, and Nanjing um, ultimately crumbles, um, it's really a challenge for him. His teeth hurt, his, he's exhausted, he gets news that his little brother has died, he's really not in good shape, and ultimately to sort of to put a... Uh, cherry on top of this um, horribleness for him at the end his troops and and again that the reader of this book gets a sense of the importance to him of the loyalty of his troops right and you've mentioned this i mean this is an army that's based on personal loyalty um we see those troops really descending into disarray and into the kind of behavior after Nanjing Falls that really um, dismays him, that he really, um, at least in the context of the book, um, as they fall into disorder and start doing things that he's not proud of, um, this is really kind of just a, a nail in the coffin, ultimately, at least from the perspective of a reader of what's happening with Zhang Fan. So by the end of the book, and there's there's a ton of stuff, right, that, that gets us here. There's so many people that we could be talking about um, in the course of this um, story. But by the end of the book, um, Nanjing Falls, Hong Rengang, and Li Xiucheng, who we haven't talked about, but who's also um, an important character in uh, for the Taiping, they are um, beat, the Taiping are beat. By the time we get to the epilogue, you bring us out from this story of men and battles and relationships and um, sort of 
transformations in how international relations are also playing out in this context. And you bring us out into some larger consequences, not just of the story, but also of the way you've decided to tell the story. One of the questions that you raise in the epilogue, is there a moral that can be gleaned from the war? Sort of the issue of morality here. So I'll just pose that to you and ask you to talk a little bit about that. Is there a moral that can be gleaned from the war? And in what sense do you um, want readers to get some sort of moral point or, or rather um, way of thinking about morality in history, perhaps, from the story that you've told us? Did I answer the question when I asked it? You talk about that. You talk about the question. So, you know, what do you think now? At the risk of contradicting myself, if I did (laughs) claim a moral to this story, the whole book is a moral fable in a certain sense of how people act, especially on the side of people like Hong Rangan and and the Taiping and and Zhang Guofan, how people confront a world, an empire that is collapsing. Um, how they balance the needs of their families and themselves against other ideals they may hold for 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 the government or for the future. Um, one of the things that I tried as conscientiously as I could to do in this book was to try to take everyone in their sort of full human capacity with their strengths and their weaknesses. And there is no great hero in this book because everybody is tainted at some point or another. Um, Tsung Guofan is, is heroic in, in his victories and he's also is shockingly brutal in the executions of captured prisoners. Um, Hong Rangan, who begins with his you know, great idealism and visions for the future of China, um, turns embittered and seems perhaps he was just fantasizing about what could actually happen. Um, the foreigners who the foreigners who help are tainted. And there's, I can't think of any character that comes through this being universally good um, and or universally bad. Even some of the worst among them have, have, have their good points. But in a sense, trying to find a moral for a historian is often a process of twisting things to create one um, or to try to find a hero where there may not actually be one. And when you look at just the sheer utter destruction of this war, um, for decades after the end of the war, all of the scars were still visible, not just on the population, but on the landscape, um, that it's, it is hard to it maybe the question should not be is there a moral, but just how to prevent this from happening again. Um, you know, that there is not a, a sort of a happy take home message of don't you know don't intervene in foreign civil wars. I, I don't know. Um, but even the individuals in here who seem like they were had the best of motivations sometimes committed the most atrocious of acts in order to further those. Um, the the worst among the British on the ground in China thought they were acting for, for good. They thought they were acting for, for you know good Christian future. They thought they were acting in the best interests of China, frankly. Um, and I think once you expand the scope of these you know, very human characters as far as they can go, um, then you're left with sort of a sense of hopelessness. It's and In that sense, maybe similar to a book about World War One, um, where what are the morals that can be taken away? It was a war that shouldn't have needed to happen. Um, it's a war in which nobody comes out with any particular measure of glory. Um, Zhang Wofan, he did come out as the victor, but he didn't really feel that way. Um, and he seems to have died fairly unhappy. And then 
you know, of course, he was just, you know, condemned by the the nationalists who arose in the early 20th century as being the, as for having butchered ethnic Chinese in order to keep the Manchus in power, uh, for being the, you know, the the greatest traitor to his race who had ever lived. Um, and again, you can see you can you can look you can see China trying to come to a moral of this entire story. Uh, Zhong Lufan seems to have won out in the end. I, I, it's wonderful. I saw the uh, the Chinese the Communist Party Central Committee uh, released its first ever top ten list of books that every party member should read, and and, and there was a biography of Zhong, biography of Zhong Lufan was number three on the list. Um, so from being the enemy of his people, he's 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 back to being as to being a model of what all socialist citizens should be reading. Um, but it is it, it's hard there are there are individuals in here who I find deeply admirable and sadly many of them are ineffective um, individual British uh, diplomats or, 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 or foreign service personnel who who do have a clear uh, or at least a clearer notion that the typing weren't quite so bad as the Imperials made them out to be. Um, or at least that they certainly were no more cruel than the militia soldiers of the, of the Imperials. Um, that there was no more or less violence being caused by either side in the civil war, that they were, they were both horrific. Um, but the, the more clear eyed individuals who do make their way through the book usually wind up not being listened to. Now, speaking of sides, um, you mentioned uh, just, this is a term that you just mentioned just a little bit ago. This brings us to really the last kind of um, book or, or substantive book question that I'd like to ask you before um, we wrap up and move to our conclusion. And that's about the last quotation that you use to frame the book. Um, I mentioned at the very beginning, there are these two quotations that frame the book at the very beginning, at the very end. The last quotation is, Sooner or later, Hung said, one has to take sides if one is to remain human. This is a quotation from The Quiet American by Graham Greene. Can you speak to um, the, the, the importance of this quotation as a framing device for the book? Why end there? And what's the significance for <clears throat> you um, of this particular quotation um, that you're, you're leaving readers with at the end of the story? I think the strongest analogy there, I mean, the, obviously the quiet American being about, about foreign intervention in Vietnam, um, in its context where it appears in the book, it comes after the conclusion where the British intervened with various hopes about the humanity of what they were doing. Um, that the intervention, the leaders of the intervention believed ultimately that it was a humanitarian intervention. Um, they also thought there would be economic benefits. And the reality is that neither of those manifested. Um, the economic benefits never manifested. It turned, it out, turned out that actually trade was better during the war. But worse of all is that the, the foreigners who were helping the intervention based in Shanghai and who were giving support to, to Li Hongzhang's Huai army – um, believed that they were bringing peace um, to to China. When the reality, when you look at the full scale of the war, is that they actually served to prolong it for years longer than it might have otherwise ended if they had not intervened. But and the reason why I included that quotation at the end is that can it ever be anything but um, that there is something deeply human about needing to take a side? Uh, the I think the only clear voices that ultimately came through in 
in hindsight and with the joy of the historian being able to you know pass judgment on other people that they would never have been able to understand themselves that of course in hindsight it looks like the british should have stayed out completely but in the midst of it all some of the ones who were calling for the intervention were doing so simply because they believed that this horror and this atrocity and this terrible you know, these terrible events that were happening in china needed to end and that even those ones who were motivated entirely by a sense of humanitarian good served entirely nefarious purposes and simply were you know found themselves embroiled in the chaos and the butchery of the war um so it's it's in a sense it's i think that quote is also an acknowledgement that one shouldn't be um so confident about criticizing people in the past um because if one were thrown into the same position perhaps one would be one of the ones taking that same stand well, Steve, that's a really wonderful place, I think, to at least pause in our engagement with the book. Um, and hopefully listeners will continue on. And if they haven't already had a chance to um, read the book, uh, as I've already mentioned, it's a total pleasure to read. I learned a lot from it. And also, you know, it's, it's, it's a really compelling story. And it's a really beautifully wrought set of accounts of human beings um, that really raises these characters from at historical actors to people making decisions and living through what were really, really difficult circumstances. Now, there's a ton of material that we didn't have a chance to talk about. And it's not only an exceptionally rich book, but an hour just isn't remotely enough time to do justice to all of the really wonderful aspects of all of the chapters. Given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers? Sure. Um, I mean, uh, one, actually, I, what I would maybe go back to, because I didn't get to say anything, I didn't get to say very much about them as they came by earlier, um, but these figures of Frederick Townsend Ward and then Charles Gordon, the uh, the foreigners who who served on on the Qing side um, to fight against the Taiping, um, they to me were so interesting because they leave a legacy, and this is something that I that I grappled with when I was when I was first starting to work with them because this is this is how I had learned it, um, which is that they were remembered in the West for. The, basically their charity to China um, that in the midst of the opium wars and the various things to make Westerners feel guilty about, about you know, British and Chinese relations in the 19th century, um, Ward and Gordon have always been held up as, as models of cooperation. That they said this is Sino foreign cooperation that Gordon came and helped the Chinese. And it's, absolutely amazing how long this lasts. Um, one of the things I came across recently, uh, Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister at the end of World War I, um, during the negotiations at the, at the Treaty of Versailles, um, the subject of China comes up and he talks about how you know, the Chinese are incapable of governing themselves, you know, you know, about to spark the May 4th movement and whatnot. Um, but he says in passing, yeah, you know, the Chinese basically can't govern themselves. Um, and if, if Gordon hadn't been there to organize their forces, the Chinese would have been destroyed by the Taiping Rebellion. So all the way up in 1919, this very confident British prime minister, oh, how he remembers the war is that the British came sweeping in um, to victory. Frederick Townsend Ward is more of a scandalous character. He's a bit of a rascal, but still, he's the, the subject of adventure. And I think one of the things that I was trying to do in this book was 
to say, well, what happens if you take the story of these bold foreign adventurers, as they're generally described, you know, charging on in and setting China right? What happens if you actually expand the scale of the story and realize the horror of what they were inserting themselves into? Um, then what is it that they're actually affecting? When you say Gordon went in and saved China, well, what China did you mean in particular? Um, and sort of a way of, of, of finding out really you know, what what they meant. Um, because again, they're, they're, they're these colorful and wonderful characters, but oh lord, uh, the, the, the the things that they got themselves involved in are not the sort of things that sort of children should be taught to emulate um, in their storybooks about about the uh, about the great foreigners who went and helped China. And similar, I guess the the last point on that is that this is why China. This is why in English it has always been called the Taiping Rebellion. Um, it was called. It was called a whole number of things during the war. It was the. It was the civil war. It was the insurgency. It was the rebellion. Depending on whose side you took, um, but it was that conscious decision to take the side of the Qing dynasty against the Taiping that reduced the Taiping to mere rebels. And which is why, when I started working on this again, the received wisdom on the Taiping rebellion is that. Hong Shouquan had a rebellion and killed 20 million people. Um, and the story is so much more complex than that. And the war itself is so much more complex. And to pin all of the violence and all of the destruction um, on entirely one side is, again, that's a leftover, I think, of the decision towards the intervention at the end of the war. And it's just stayed with us forever in the way that we talk about it. Well, Steve, thank you so much, and congratulations on a fantastic book. What's next for you? Now that the book is out, um, what are you particularly inspired by right now, and are there any new projects you're working on? Um, I'm working on a new book. It's I call it my Opium War book, but it's not really about the Opium War. It's about the decades leading up to the Opium War. Um, I had originally thought of doing a sort of a, a, an immersive narrative of the Opium War, but then I was tired of all the blood and guts. Um, so I'm going to step back from that. And also Julia Lovell just wrote a beautiful book on the Opium War itself. Um, so I've been looking more at the, the 1820s and 1830s, I'm going back as far as the early 1800s, this, the, the, the Jiaqing period and the early Daoguang period leading up to the Opium War. Um, trying to, I, I was, I, I, since it's all a muddle and I'm in the midst of it, um, in the big picture, what I've been doing in my research, and I won't know the story until I get much further along, but in the research, trying to, again, trying to cast a wider net, there's been a wonderful resurgence of, of work on, on the Jiaqing period. Um, people like uh, Wang Wenchang just came out with a lovely book um, great, based on a great dissertation. Um, dai Ying Tong's work on the White Lotus Rebellion uh, uh, Bill Rose' current work on Baoshu Chen. Um, so there's been this this revival of this, or this bringing to life of a of a very neglected period preceding the Opium War, um, I, um, which which I want to dive into. It's, it's amazing actually how little has really been written about Lin Zexu. Um, I mean, frankly, with the, with the Taiping book, it was amazing to me how little has been written about Song Lufan, considering that you know. You know a novel based on his life sold you know, tens of millions of copies in mainland China. Um, it, it shocked me when I was working on that to realize that the last time somebody wrote a book about Zhang Wafan in English was in 1927. Um, 
Um, there's been actually very little written uh, written about Lin Zexu. Um, but trying to find a way of, um, I mean, ultimately, I'm, I'm fascinated by the world of Canton. I'm fascinated by the world of the foreign traders there. Um, there are wonderful archives in the Boston area from the Boston families that were involved in the China trade. Um, there are you know, the records everywhere you look. I think, generally speaking, though, I feel like most of the books that do a pretty good job with sort of the world of, of the Canton trade tend to treat the Chinese side very one-dimensionally. Um, and similarly, the story, the, the, the historians that have dug very, very deeply into what was really happening in China during the, during the first part of the 19th century, the White Lotus Rebellions, the piracy on the coast, the, you know, the problems of corruption, the, the rise of scholarly debate and, and criticism. Um, as the foreigners in Canton appear, or as the opium trade appears in those works, it tends also to be very marginal, um, tends to be fairly, fairly monodimensional. Um, there's, it's a very complex world on both sides. And what I'm trying to do at this point is read as widely as I can on, in both to try to see what happens to try to really bring them together with all the moral conflicts of the foreign traders and what they were up against, all the arguments for and against opium, all the arguments about free trade versus monopoly. Um, on the one side, try to, try to bring that into full focus while also fully fleshing out how what was happening you know, in the outside world with the Napoleonic Wars and the rise of Britain played against the decline of the Qing Dynasty fighting the White Lotus Rebellions, um, and then dealing with piracy, dealing with with, with corruption within the, within the ranks, with, um, seeking a revival. Um, so in other words, to try to think again about... Uh, why the Opium War did happen. Because if you go back to you know, 1810 or 1815, or even in the early 1830s, it seems un- inconceivable that anything like that would happen. The trade in Canton is so incredibly important, both for China and for Britain, um, that any possibility of conflict seems suicidal for either side. I mean, the, all, you know, there, there are various proposals along the way of, of you know, angry British in Canton asking for gunboats, and they're always shot down by the directors of the East India Company or by the Governor General in India, you know, all of whom point out, you know, even, even McCartney pointed this out, um, yeah, he, he Laura McCartney, after he was sent packing from Beijing, he said, well, you know, all we would need to do is bring in a couple of gunboats and, you know, we could starve everybody on the coast of China. But then what happens? Then China shuts down trade and there goes the entire tea trade and there goes the British economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the sense that how did a trade that was in, in similarly within China, the, 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 the heavy streams of revenue going into the empire from foreign trade at a time when, when there's you know, so much of loss of revenue within the country and so much of a desperate need for revenue when the land taxes couldn't be raised. Um, the, the Canton trade was very, very beneficial. Um, the huge exactions on the Hong merchants to pay for various wars. Um, how did they, How did it come to a point that it would turn into a war? How did the British become so emboldened? How did they justify to themselves the morals of it? Um, these have been covered in various ways, but, I, but I'm hoping that, with, that by casting as wide of a net as I can, um, um, to try to understand really both sides um, in their sort of full multidimensionality. Well, that sounds great too. Um, so best of luck with that project, Steve. It's really, really been a pleasure and thank you again. Thank you so much, Carla. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.